And now, Father, we come to your word. We are so grateful that you would speak to us. We desperately need to hear from you. We need you to explain and to interpret and to help us understand the life in which we live. The purposes raise our eyes this morning to see you and to understand things in light of you, not just in light of us. Father, I ask that you would use me this morning as your servant. I ask that your spirit would illumine our minds. And as your word is powerful and you've told us that, that it would do its work in our lives. Would you remove resistance in our hearts and our minds so that we can hear and think about you? So that, Father, this morning when we leave, we can leave saying that we have heard from you and we have worshipped you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 7 of this chapter. We're going to look at this this morning. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And as he passed by, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. A couple months ago, uh, I went to the optometrist. I went primarily because I was going with my wife and our kids. My wife was complaining about her vision. And uh, we wanted to go and get her checked out. And, of course, we needed to get the kids in to have them checked out as well. And I went, and, of course, the optometrist did what they do. And they did all that with the kids and said, yeah, 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 and got some new prescriptions for my wife. And then at that time, he said, Rick, get in the chair. I said, you know, I haven't been to the optometrist for 37 years, and I don't think I need to start now. I've got good vision. I can see just fine. And he said, just get in the chair. And uh, so I said, okay. And, you know, they do all the lens things, puts in front of you. And then, you know, after a period of time, you're looking at the, 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 the little number, the letters and numbers and stuff, and pointing this way and that. And he says, uh, he just starts to laugh. And he said, you're worse than they are. <laughs> and then he took me outside, and he, he had these two lenses. And he said, look up at that sign. And, and I looked at the sign, and I said, I can read it. And then he put lenses in front of my eyes. And I began to laugh. And I said, oh, <laughs> that's what it looks like to see, clearly. Now, I could see. Don't, don't, don't mistake. I could see. But... My question, as I, as I think of that situation, is I wonder, one, how long I had gone without really seeing very clearly. But then secondly, how, how long might I have gone 
and how bad might it have got my vision over the course of time. You see, what, what I needed was somebody to help me to see that I couldn't see. I needed someone to help me understand the condition that my eyesight was in. And that's what he did. The passage that we're going to look at this morning, Christ uses sight as a metaphor, as a picture for us of what he intends to do in people's lives. He uses it not just in a physical sense, and of course we're going to see he uses it as a physical, as a spiritual physical, a spiritual idea, a metaphor of what he will do. His desire is to step into the reality of the lives that we experience, the tragedy, the suffering, the difficulty that we have to give insight there and then to open eyes so that we can see. He deals directly with life as it comes to us. And then he involves fallen people in his sight-giving purposes and his desire to do that. Let me give just a little bit of context. The passage that I've read Obviously, the, the Gospel of John is just that. It's a gospel from, from John. It's, it's written about Jesus Christ. It puts on display who he is through his words and through his actions. And if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1, there's two passages just to set the context of the book. It's, it's really pretty simple in many respects. John opens the book with a statement about who Jesus is, and he calls him the Word. I'm going to read the first five verses of this, of this chapter and then verse 14. Just to get a picture of as John begins to talk about Christ, these are some things he says that are true about him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, And this word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see what John says about Jesus as the word of God. You you look, it says that he was with God and he was God. He is God. That everything that has been created has been created by him. By the word. He spoke it into existence. That Christ was present and involved vitally in creation of each and everything and everyone. And we see that he is the light. And it shines in the darkness. And he came to shine. And then we see that this word became flesh. And we understand that to be Jesus. To come manifest so that we can see him through the scripture. And that they could see him with their eyes. That he was the glory of the son of the the only son of the father. Full of grace and filled with truth. So we see as John begins his gospel, he says, this is whom I'm talking about. This is is the person that we're going to display for you. And then turn with me to the end of John, John chapter 20. John gives us a concise purpose for the writing of his book near the end here. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. He says, there's lots of things that I could write about Jesus, 
But these particular things, these events and these words are being written for the express purpose that you might know that he is Christ the Messiah. And that you might believe in him. And through your belief in him that you might have life in his name. And so from beginning to end of this gospel, John says, this is who Jesus is. And he puts him on display for us. And so as we come to John chapter 9, we know that this is what he is doing. He's putting on display and he's building a case through Jesus' words and his actions that lead us to belief in him. The immediate context of John chapter 9 is the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, John chapter 7 and chapter 8. We have Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem and there's this feast, this celebration at the time. It happened sometime in September. It was celebrating the fall harvest, grapes, olives and such. It was certainly looking at God's provision for the nation of Israel and for the, for the Jews at this time. And so Jesus comes into this context. And in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says this. I read this in, the, in the, the announcement this morning where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but walk in the light of life. Jesus declares in the middle of this this ceremony in the middle of this time he says i am the light and so as we come to the section that we're going to look at immediately follows this uh, feast of the tabernacles where jesus has said i am the light the question that we need to be asking as we come to this is what is it that the light does when this light shows up how do we know that what is the evidence of his presence and the answer as i gave earlier is that he opens eyes that he makes us to see, he enables us to see clearly. In this event in chapter 9 where Jesus heals this blind man, and the rest of the chapter is a living parable for us. It's a picture of what the light does when he steps into humanity, when he steps into our lives. And he uses this as an example to demonstrate for us, because this man receives his physical sight but as we read earlier in the call to worship, he eventually, he, he, he receives his spiritual sight. And his spiritual eyes are opened and he worships Jesus. And we're going to see that Jesus engages this man in his real condition, the real situation, and he helps him to see. Look with me in verse, uh, chapter, or verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw the man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? A couple observations. First of all, you see that, that John tells us this man was blind from birth. Now, we don't know exactly how he knows it at this point in time, but it seems to be important in the text that this man was blind from the beginning of his life, had been blind all of his life. is isn't just kind of hard to see. He, he can't see, and he's been that way all of his life. And he tells us that. And then you see the question in, in result to seeing this man that his disciples ask. You can picture them walking by, and here's a man that's blind. And they're wondering about this individual. They're saying, and so they ask Jesus, why is this man blind? They say, was it because of his sin or was it because of his parents' sin that he is blind? That he is this way. And you see that there's an assumption that's embedded in, underneath that question. As they ask it, who is it? Their assumption is that it was because of somebody's sin in his life. That, that's the reason that he is like he is. And the broader question as we look at this, and for them and for us, is, is, is why did this happen? They want to know, 
How do I explain this situation? How do I explain that the fact that this man is, is born blind? It, it must be because of sin. It seems to them there's no other possible explanation. Now, Jesus gives them an answer. He gives them an answer, and he helps to understand the reasoning or what's going on there. And if you look with me, there's another place where Jesus more explicitly deals with tragedy. Look with me in Luke chapter 13. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. There's a, in this, this section, Jesus deals with two kind of tragedies. And he addresses them in a particular way that helps us understand how do we understand the nature of this kind of suffering? How do we understand that? Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. There were some present, at the ver- this is Luke, at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In these two tragic situations, the question is, did this happen because of something they did? Because of some sin that was extra grave or, 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 or bad or evil in their lives? And Jesus says in both situations, he says, no, it wasn't because of something they did. It wasn't because of their sin. But you see what he does? He turns the situation and he says, he uses it as a chance to call them to repentance. And he says, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He reminds them of the mercy that God had shown them in this situation who were still alive. That this mercy was shown to them and that that, that is to call them to repentance. So Jesus in both cases says, no, it's not because of their sin. Now turn back to John chapter 9 as we look at Jesus' answer. It does need to be said that there is pain and suffering that's a result of sin, the result of decisions that people make. We can't overlook that. But in this case, Jesus says, no, this is not the case in this person's life, in his situation. We see that they see this man and they ask the question, who sinned? We have the suffering of a person in front of them. And it's almost like they want to use, kind of, they have like a theological exercise. They, they want an answer. And Jesus doesn't allow it just to stay there. The question of human suffering is inescapable for all of us. We all deal with it, whether directly or indirectly, we walk through it. We see it, we experience it, we bump into it, and it hurts. Over the last couple of weeks, some of you know, my father passed away. And, um, you know, my life was going pretty pretty smooth. I was in Orlando taking some classes and things were going just fine. Seemed to be moving ahead. And all of a sudden the phone call comes. Some of you have had this kind of phone call. Dad's sick. He's getting worse. You need to come home. Now, I flew home primarily to watch my dad get better. Every time he's gotten better before. But that wasn't to be. My prayer was, God, just let me see him and we'll help him get better. Day, the 24 hours there, and I watched him die. First time to deal with something like that, at least in my life. Some of you have been through that. Life is moving along and all of a sudden you hit something and it's hard. 
And it's hard not just because it's complicated and complex. It's hard because it doesn't move. And it hurts when you hit it. And as I look back and reflect, the question that you ask is, how do I understand this thing that just happened? The the disciples were asking, how do we understand this man who was born blind? For each of us, in each situation, how do I interpret? How do we explain this? I don't know. And to be honest with you, the days that followed my dad's death, I had no other place to go except for his word. Where else do you go to understand death? Nobody can tell you about it except for the one that understands it and made us. I can't tell you just the truth and the, the healing that was there. And certainly it still goes on. You still have to hang on to it. But it's real. There's no other place to go. And Jesus steps into this situation with this man who is blind and begins to offer a solution. He offers an answer. You see, what we want to do as we enter these situations, we either want to avoid the situation or we want to blame somebody else. I think it's interesting that as the disciples are asking the question about this man's sin, you, you might see their, their mind kind of thinking, if I could only know what sin it was, I can avoid this. If I just knew what he did or his parents did, I could avoid this kind of tragedy in my life. Or somehow, if we can just blame somebody else, we can cast that blame, somebody else did that, it, it's easier to deal with. But the issue is, oftentimes in our life, as we hit these situations and we try to interpret them or explain them, the answer is oftentimes silence. We don't know. We do not understand what happened or why it happened exactly. But we look, and it drives us crazy trying to look and find someone else to blame, someone else to to understand it. I found out this week that my father died of the West Nile virus. It was that that killed him. That virus, he had a compromised immune system. His body could do nothing. And I got to tell you that I thought I had it all together until I, re- I thought a mosquito carried the virus to my dad. A random mosquito bit my dad, and as a result, he died. And it pushed my understanding of God's control and his sovereignty in situations much farther than I ever wanted it to. So much so that I would trust that he was sovereign even over a little mosquito in Kirksville, Missouri that bit my dad. Now, I don't understand that. Some of you know um, Demerick and Beth Patton, um, staff with Campus Crusade. They just lost a three-month-old. Again, very unexpectedly, she was in. Ashlyn was in having surgery for a, a cleft lip and palate. They thought she was doing just fine. They came to pick her up after some time of uh, recovery. Nurse said, she's doing just fine. She's, doing, she'll, she's recovering and only to find as they're doing some paperwork, um, the coloring begins to, to look really bad. They picked her up. She wasn't breathing. She was lifeless. She died within a day of that. Complicated. They think that she aspirated and, 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 and basically died on some spit up, but they don't know exactly sure. We don't know what to do with these kinds of things, but we must be prepared to deal with it. Because this was the question that Jesus was being asked to answer to. He says, these disciples say, what do you do with this? How do you explain this? Look what Jesus does. He gives them an answer 
but not quite the answer that maybe they would expect. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Firstly, I'm thankful that Jesus gives them an answer. He validates their need to know. He validates their need to have some understanding of what's happening in this man's life and to explain human suffering, to explain tragedy. But as usual, his, his answer isn't in the same form of the question that's asked. The disciples asked, Jesus, was it A or was it B? Was it A, B, or C? Which one was it? Just tell us and that'll be the answer. And Jesus says, it's neither A and it's neither B or C. In fact, it's, it's not at all as you think about it. It's not at all like you are asking the question. It's completely different. It's not A or B, he says. It's that the works of God might be displayed in this man. So it's, he gives them a different kind of answer. And you see that the disciples are asking Jesus to comment as to the cause of this man's misery. But Jesus' interest isn't so much as to the cause of his ministry, of his misery, as much as to the purpose of his misery. Not who or what is the cause, but what is the transcendent, ultimate hope or purpose that's taking place here. The purpose that's beyond your sight. The purpose that's beyond your vision. See, cause or blame attributes temporal blame. We want to say, who did it? So we can point the the finger. But purpose points to a transcendent hope. It raises our eyes from the immediate situation to look to God's transcendent, eternal purposes. Points to something that's beyond us. Jesus, in effect, is saying, you're looking in the wrong wrong place. You're asking the wrong kind of question. You need to look for God's purposes. When our eyes are fixed on the immediate, and no doubt in the midst of tragedy they are, and it's hard to get them to raise from the situation. But when they're fixed on the immediate, we immediately begin to to talk and, 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 and see how do we understand this with our own mind, with our own perspective, But as we look for God's purposes, our eyes are raised and we see he's got something else in mind. He's got a purpose. And his ways are much different than ours. They're beyond ours. They're mysterious. We might have some sense of how to understand them, but we can know that he knows what's going on. The same here, he says, there is a work that God wants to do in this man's life. Some of you know, again, situation with Demerick and Beth. The, The... as they went back in and they dealt with this, um, the story that just, that just challenged me is they went back and they talked to the nurse who was attending to Ashland at the time. And they said, you know what? We want you to know that we do not blame you. We want you to not live for the rest of your life wondering what if. We want you to know that we trust in a sovereign God. And they were able to talk with her and share that with her, the reality of that. And the question is, how do we live like that? How do we get our eyes raised? It's only by seeing through the lenses of God's purpose, of seeing that there's something more. But Jesus, as, as we ask the question again, okay, what is it the light does? He steps into the situation, right? And then he illuminates it. He enables us to see differently, to move beyond the temporal to the eternal. He opens our eyes to be able to understand it. But he doesn't stop there just with an answer of saying it's, it's about the purposes of God that are beyond your understanding. It brings about a response. Jesus will never leave truth left in its theoretical form. 
It always must elicit a response in his life. He cannot just be asked to step in to this man's life and do nothing. Only use it as some sort of a test case. He must do something. It's not just words, but he moves to embody the truth in God's purposes. Look in verses 4 and 5. We see what he, what he says, and then in verse 6 and 7, what he does. 4 and 5, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. A couple things here as we look at what he says. As he identifies the purposes of God, then he says, we must work. There's a necessity of work. I must do something. I cannot stand by and do nothing in this situation. When there is a need, I must step into the situation. There's a necessity of work. He goes on to describe the situation as being, there's an opportunity. There's day and there's night. You work at daytime and you can't work at night. And it seems... That there's a sense of urgency where Jesus says, well, it's day we work. So we have a sense of urgency and a necessity of work. And then finally, he identifies himself again as the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. And he ties these three truths, the necessity of work, the urgency of the opportunity, and then the identity of who he is to bring about, to step into the situation. Jesus must work because, one, because of the opportunity that's in front of him. And then secondly, because he is the light. What is it that light does? It dispels darkness. He cannot not, to use a double negative, he cannot not step into the situation. He must do something. And that he does in verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing Having said these things, he did this. Having understood the works and the, of God that he wanted to put on display, he began to act out the works of God. He couldn't just talk about it. He now had to step into this man's situation. I find it fascinating that, um, that Jesus initiates the healing and that he doesn't ask for permission to heal this man. He doesn't say, excuse me, but I'm just wondering if you'd sign this waiver. I'd like to heal you right now. He just does it. He steps into the man's life. In other situations, people would initiate with him and he would heal. But because he initiates, it tells us something, that he's doing something more than just healing this man physically. He's saying, I want to do something, and I want to show you, my disciples, and I want to show you sitting in Lawrence, Kansas today. I want to show you what I'm about. This is what I do. And so he begins. He initiates the process. A couple things need to be said because this process of healing it's just a little bit unusual. Um, I, don't, I can't quite imagine. I'm sure you know, the, the man who is here that was born blind, he's wondering what's happening. But John tells us the process that Jesus used. Um, we see in a couple other cases, a couple references for you. In, in Mark chapter 7, verse 33 and 8, 23, we see that Jesus uses this kind of touch. In one case, there's a man who is deaf and is, has a speech impediment. In this case, we have Jesus putting his fingers in the man's ears, and then he spits and he touches his tongue, and he heals him. I don't know. The people watching that had to be saying, what is this guy doing? But guess what? The guy's healed. He can hear, and his speech impediment's gone. And later in the next chapter, you have Jesus spitting in the man's eyes, who's blind, and the man can see. And so there's some of these unique ways that Christ is involved in the healing, and it involves touch. Um... 
It's not arbitrary. Uh, although Jesus could have healed this man any way he chose, you know, he could have said, you know, do two backflips or do some cartwheels and whatever. But, but he chose this reason, this way, for a particular reason. He's just not arbitrary. And uh, I think it also needs to be said that, that there's nothing magical about his saliva. Although he was God, he still had human saliva. And so it's not like there's something about the saliva of Jesus that, that healed him, although he used it. And we don't know exactly why Jesus did it this way, but we know that it was effective. We know that the man came back being able to see. But the question we need to ask as we look at this is, is how do we understand this? What is it that we can draw? And there's lots of things that people have speculated as to this or that. One thing we do know for certain is that later on in this passage, in the account, Jesus is accused of violating the Sabbath. And the, the violation of the Sabbath is seen in the making of the mud. That you would, if you would make mud, make saliva, that, that you'd violated the Sabbath. And, and so that seems to be significant. And there's others that look at the, you know, the issue of the saliva and how they saw it as ceremonial and clean or whatever. But I think there's something in this picture that I find, I believe it's here. There might be more, but there's not less. A powerful picture of this process. I want you to consider with me what I read when we read in John 1 about Jesus as the Word. Jesus is the one that created everything. Jesus is the one that created the man that was standing right in front of him. Blindness and awe. Jesus is the one that made this man. And then what did he do? He reached down. He took some dust. And do you remember how we are made and how we were formed? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2 where they tell us, the writer tells us that God took dust, formed man, breathed into this, the first man, Adam, made him alive. God made him of the dust of the earth. And so I think as we look at this, we have a picture of Jesus, the creator of this man. Jesus that took the same dust and made the man, takes and begins the process of healing the man. As he takes this mud, he places it on his eyes, we have a picture of restoration. And if we ask the question, what is it that light does? What is it that Jesus, the creator, does? What's the purpose of his being here? He restores and he recreates. And it points to something that he wants to do in all of our lives. Not just physical healing, but spiritual. And he opens his eyes. This is a picture of what Jesus, the creator, does. In our lives, we don't want to forget that the physical healing is not the point. The physical healing is a sign, it points to the real thing. Now, to be sure, Jesus wanted to heal this man's sight, give him physical sight, and that he did. But he wanted to help him to see much more than just with his physical eyes. You know, physical restoration in our lives, sometimes God brings, sometimes he heals us. But his intentions are always much more than just physical. His intentions are ultimately spiritual. With my dad, I, I, um, my prayer in flying home is that God would show him mercy. And I didn't know what form that mercy would take. Whether that mercy would take him or that mercy would leave him. But all I can trust in is that God has something spiritual in mind because he didn't heal my dad in that situation. The rest of this chapter reveals this man's spiritual sight. I read it in the call to worship. He worshipped him. 
Jesus came and found him, and and the man worshipped him. His eyes spiritually were opened following his physical eyes being opened. He involves the man in the process. He says, go wash, and the man did. He obeyed him. I think I would. But, you know, here's the amazing thing. Think about this man. Comes back. John just says, just kind of as a matter of fact, and he came back seeing. But there's so much more in that. Imagine what that would be like. Maybe some of you know people, or some of you do have have difficulties in seeing, you might would understand what that would be like having never seen before, to all of a sudden be able to see. Your life would be transformed. The way that you would live and go about life would be completely different now as a result of being able to see. And that is a great thing. But Jesus, what he wants to do is so much more than just give him physical sight. We see that Christ didn't leave the transcendent purpose of God, the works of God, to be just left in this esoteric kind of theoretical form. Oh, God wants to do something, but he actually begins to move it into action. He is the light. He must pierce darkness. That's our tendency, at least it's mine, easy to talk about things, much more difficult to enact, much more difficult to step into situations, much more easy to kind of surmise or to discuss about some sort of case study or situation, but it's much more difficult to step in. But the truth will always have an expression in reality. And Jesus demonstrated that for us. There's one word in here that, that, that surprises me. And in some ways it unnerves me. It's the very first word in verse 4. Where Jesus uses the plural pronoun. personal. He says, we must work. It's not just I, although he's the one doing the work there. He says, we must work while it's day. We must do the work of him who sent me. Do you see who he's involving in this process of doing this work? Immediately, certainly the disciples, and they're there going, we, I mean, we don't have anything to do with this necessarily. But he says, we must. All those who have been given spiritual sight have a responsibility, have an obligation, have a sense of to take the sight that he's given us and to help others. To see, he involves us in the process of doing his work. You know, I like the the I if he were to do that better than the we, but he says no. It's it's, it's about all of us. And, and why is that? Because we are the light of the world. Jesus says, "As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." What's that mean? When he leaves, he's not the light. No, he leaves. Where does his light reside? Where does he reside inside of each and every one of us? The ones in whom his light has been made to shine in our hearts and open our eyes. Consider what he used to, to open this man's eyes. But he used mud, dirt, and he used water. They were but means. They weren't the source of his healing. They were the means of his healing. In the pool of Siloam, it says that John tells us, and it's interesting, he tells us, but it means scent. <laughs> it's by means and through the scent that this man's eyes are opened. It's by the means of those who are sent, who've been given sight, that other eyes are opened. And the question for us is how is it that we can be involved in helping others gain sight? Well, first of all, we need to embrace the gospel. We need to embrace what Christ has done for us and understanding our need for him. That he has died on the cross, forgiven us of our sin, and he has opened our eyes to allow us to see reality in its truest form. To allow us to understand and interpret eternity to some degree, death, the value of things, to understand these things and live in accordance with that. 
I think it's important for us to remember what it was like when we couldn't see. For those of us who have come to Christ, been come to him later in life or whatever, to remember, what was it like when I couldn't see straight? When I was blind spiritually? And to remember how he has opened our eyes. We then need to look around and see who has needs. Ask him to sensitize our eyes to see who's out there who also has needs. Not just to see them as a case study. Not just to see them as some place to, to use our theological understanding, but to use them as an opportunity to step into and then to not allow the truth of the gospel that is, resides in us to stay in its theoretical form, but to ask God to use us, those who he has given sight in his sight-giving purposes. Finally, what is it that the light does? That Jesus stepped into the situation in all its reality. He illuminates it. He opens the eyes of his disciples. He opens the eyes of this man. And he calls us to be involved in his sight-giving purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess how easy it is to walk through life um, in forgetting what it is that you've done in us. To forget that you have allowed us to see our lives in this world, to know you, and that changes everything. But we pray that for those whom you give insight, that you would continue to, to give us the sight to see others and to use us to intersect the lives of those who are hurting and need the gospel. For those who don't know you, I pray your gospel would penetrate, that you would open eyes even this morning. Father, we're so grateful that you have done this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ask you to rise for the benediction. Um, the response to the benediction is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. And, and as we respond, as we say that, what we're saying is that this Jesus has opened our eyes, that He is Lord of our lives. And he does not intend for us just to keep this to ourselves, but he involves, he desires to involve us in the lives of others. So receive this as God's benediction to us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And God, all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.